from the crypt. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here on a Tuesday night. The humidity has broken. It's finally comfortable out in New York City. Um, before we start, though, uh, per the request of John Newberry after last week, we're going to pour some out for Herman Hesse, his favorite author. Uh, you don't have to do it, Nick. Okay. I just had to do this for John just to appease you. So, John, we just poured some out for Herman Hesse, and I don't know if you freaks could hear him in the background, but I have Nick Carter in the studio with me. Nick, welcome to Tales from the Crypt. Thank you, Marty. Glad to be here. Well, I appreciate you taking the train down from uh, Boston. I know uh, it makes you a little bit of motion sick. Yeah, I get motion sickness. <laughs> well, it's a genetic thing. Hopefully this bourbon will help you get over that. All right, cheers. And, and beers, cheers. We're uh, we're double fist in uh, bourbon and beer. Coors Light and Bullet Bourbon. Uh, pulling out, uh, what the hell? I forget the artist's name. Not John Theragun. Whatever. We're here to talk about Bitcoin blockchain. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Nick Carter is the co-founder, or excuse me, the partner, a partner at Castle Island Ventures, the co-founder of Coinmetrics and a fellow shitcoin minimalist. Uh, Nick has never listened to one episode of Tales from the Crypt, so he's coming in blind. Nick, the way we usually start this off is, how did you find Bitcoin? Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show, Marty. Um, yours is one of the few podcasts I will ever do in my life. Uh, the people that know me know that I have a no podcast policy. Well, I really appreciate it. I'm honored. So I'm violating that, um, you know, uh, because you put me in your newsletter all the time. <laughs> so keep doing that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm sorry you get inundated uh, with that rag every once in a while. It's a good one. Um, <laughs> as a as a, someone who was born a Brit, I have to inform you that uh, Marty's bent is a vulgar term in British English. Really? Get bent? I mean... Yeah, get bent. But well, it, it's a, it's a sort of extremely vulgar. Yeah, I'm a pretty vulgar person, so it fits. Bent in the uh, the you're you're a master of the English language too, so I'm I'm very worried about going into this description. But bent, the way I use it, uh, is sort of as an inclination or a tilt towards something. Well, I, I mean, I know what what it means in the intended usage. <laughs> <I'm just> <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, I am basically telling most of this landscape, uh, cryptocurrency landscape, to get bent. Uh, a lot of what that's I write good, about. That's an appropriate strategy. There's, there's a lot of, you know, wrong. It needs to be straightened out, basically. Uh, we're going to get deep into this. First, how the hell did you find Bitcoin? Where were you? Um, I was uh, where I always am, which is just on message boards, you know, online. Um, I think the first time I saw it was like Slashdot 2011. I used to be a big Slashdotter. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, I was also a big Redditor, um, OG Redditor. I wish I still had those accounts because I could see all the stuff that I would have said back then about it. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, it was posted on on um, just like on on the tech forums a whole bunch in the early days. I think the first time it was on Slashdot was like the third or fourth uh, uh, upgrade of Bitcoin Core Satoshi's implementation. I don't the 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 dates are fuzzy for me now, but uh, I you know I didn't really know what it was. Kind of was interested, a little bit curious. I was like sort of a libertarian, so I kind of liked the idea. Um, but I, I I you know truthfully didn't seriously get into it until like 2015 16. Mm -hmm. So there was a very long discovery phase for me. And, uh, it's pretty common between a lot of people. You first see it and you're like, ah, what the hell is this? Not really interesting. And then you come back to it and fall down the rabbit hole. So what sort of pushed you back into it? Um, so 
So the the first um the first real interaction I had with any cryptocurrency was Dogecoin. Um, in uh, in 2013, and I I don't know if you remember, but there was a very vibrant tipping culture on Reddit. On Reddit, yeah, in particular. I, you know, I, I I'm an extremely prolific redditor. Um, thousands, hundreds of thousands of karma. You know, very proud of my accumulated karma. Um, and and I had like so much fun tipping people back and forth on uh, on mostly on the big well on the Dogecoin subreddit too. And you know, there's this, like there's this fun communitarian thing where we like crowdfunded the uh, the Jamaican bobsled team and the NASCAR. Mm-hmm. Car, the NASCAR car. Yeah, who who uh who just funded another NASCAR car? Yeah, I yeah I saw that right, yeah. but it's like they it's thought not, it was original too. It's not like, a, you can't. It's not cool anymore. <laughs> Dogecoin did it five years ago. That's the face that was on the uh, the NASCAR. Yeah, so it was fun back then, and now it's just extremely derivative. Yeah. So I uh, yeah, people send me a bunch of Dogecoin, and uh, we had so much fun like tipping thousands of worthless Dogecoin around. I mined some Dogecoin. Because I, 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 there was a one-click miner you could do. And, CPU? Uh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I, it was so stupid because I melted um, a, a pretty nice MacBook. Because <laughs> really? I was overclocking it on this thing. Um, I was in college at the time, and that was the end of that, uh, that, where, the end of that MacBook. Where were you studying? Uh, University of St. Andrews in, oh, nice. in, uh, in Scotland. Hell yeah. So um, I, I there was I, you know I minded a net loss because the the sort of hardware depreciation kind of got me. That'll happen. Yeah, a for, relatively new net MacBook. Oh, it was it was pretty old at the time, so I, I it was a good excuse to get a new one. But uh, that was my first brush really with uh, with uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah, and I, I mean I think I've been following you on Twitter now for a couple of years. You were a huge Monero head at one point. At one point, your avatar was very Monero focused. Yeah, we try and keep that quiet these days. <laughs> Are you ashamed of your Monero? I, I just have to be a little bit more presentable these days. That's <laughs> true. You uh, you do look like a nice, proper young man in your in your avatar now. Yes, that's right. Hi. I uh, I now I'm in full color. I have a color AVI on Twitter. It's great. <laughs> um, yeah. So. What is the sort of philosophy that drives you towards this stuff? Like you said, you have a libertarian background. Well, not, not extreme libertarianism, but uh, definitely, you know, definitely believe that um, that any form of non-state money is excellent bargaining power um, with which to reason with central banks and, uh, you know, potentially convince them not to engage in extremely loose monetary policy. Um, that's that's really my contention on, on all this stuff. Yeah. And... Um, so at one point, again, I don't want to harp on it. You were into Monero, so you think fungibility is a big, a big uh, need for for these cryptocurrencies? Yeah, it's essential. It's mm-hmm. essential. Uh, gold can be melted down um, and transformed. Um, you know, it could be it could have been used for abominable transactions, but uh, you know, once verified and stamped, it's it's still the same gold. Gold has no sort of memory associated with it. And, you know, cash, physical cash hardly does. I mean, you could argue that serial numbers are the memory, but I don't think money should have uh, memory associated with it. And uh, unfortunately, Bitcoin has that. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily degrade Bitcoin's value proposition too much. I'm like fairly optimistic about fungibility enhancements, um, but uh, it's definitely a problem. What do you think about. Um the new wallet upgrades have been coming out specifically with Samurai and Wasabi. Like, it seems that you can do coin join and stuff within a wallet without 
a counterparty. Uh, so it seems like Wallet UX is helping create a ben- better, more fungible Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, are, are, is that are you seeing that too, or is there like yeah. ways to to skate that system? Yeah. So I mean, you have fungibility enhancements at the base layer. Like obviously, that's what Monero tries to do. Um, and then you know, interestingly, you have it at the kind of transactional layer now. Uh, with Wasabi and uh, Samurai's Whirlpool. Um, and uh, actually, Samurai has a whole host of enhancements and kind of premium transactions you can make. And I'm, like, super optimistic about that stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, but do you think it ever gets to, like, a consumer-ready level where, like, that is, like, the go-to wallet? And Well, most pe- consumers don't really... <sighs> they're not willing to pay up for privacy Mm -hmm. and and those transactions will oftentimes be more uh, expensive or more inconvenient. You might have to wait for the mixing rounds to occur and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I'm pretty optimistic. I think the samurai guys are, are on the right track and they've like really, really, you know, foresighted ideas about all this stuff. Yeah. I uh, am waiting with bated breath to see their iOS app. If uh, Apple ever, that's I know I'm I'm stuck with freaking bread wallet on this thing. <laughs> I don't even bother. I don't even Come bother on. with uh, phone wallets. They're not. What are you gonna buy your coffee with? You know. Well, the Cash App is making it very easy now. Another unpaid for Cash App ad, the best UX I've seen in this in in the space to date. I ordered my debit card. It's uh, I use it every day. They uh, there's a little Bitcoin icon you can put on the debit card. You can. Yeah. I gave it a crown because it's the king. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Bitcoin is the king. You are a shitcoin minimalist. What are your thoughts on the space right now? There is a ton of confusion. I feel like the ICO boom is is turning into a bust. Uh, a lot of shitcoiners out there trying to uh, trying to validate uh, their investment theses from six to seven months ago when everything was at all time highs. It feels like there's a lot of chaos and a lot of people sort of changing their minds, uh, particularly coming back to Bitcoin. Uh, I like to think that I've been pretty consistent in this stuff. I do too. Um, I, uh, you know, one of my first real long form studies of ICOs was, uh, you know, some of you may have read it, was my master's thesis um, that I wrote um, at business school. And I did a survey of the top 50 or so crypto assets at the time, of which, you know, 20 or maybe 30 or 40 even, I don't know, were ICOs, um, many of which are not in existence today. Um, and I was looking at them from the corporate governance lens. So, like, are these, are the, are the things that they're selling to investors, do they resemble shareholder equity at all? Um, you know, what exactly are the rights associated with these tokens? And obviously we all know that they're basically non-existent. And, you know, I like to call it pseudo-equity, imitation of equity. Uh, it kind of looks like equity, kind of pretends to be equity, but ultimately there's usually no cash flows whatsoever or governance rights associated with these tokens because if they had those things, then they would be beholden to, like, securities laws because then they would be straightforward securities. Um, so then my view at the time was like, well, ICOs are like caught in this middle ground um, between posturing as equity and between behaving truly as equity through, you know, giving shareholders the rights that they deserve, that they paid for, which is how equity works. And, uh, 
you know, I, at the time I, I looked at this, I'm like, well, this doesn't make sense. Um, they're, they're doing this impossible tightrope walk. Um, and you know, I think, you know, what are we 18 months on now? And it's very clear that, um, that it's, it's been a colossal failure. Um, and I've yet to see an ICO that has, has really sort of justified, um, justified itself. Um, even if it's, you know, made money for the investors as a capital formation mechanism, I I think it's basically illegitimate. One of the most popular ICOs of the last three years, Augur, probably one of the first ICOs after Ethereum. Yeah. One of the first, yeah. Probably like the first 10 ICOs in existence after Ethereum launched recently. What are your thoughts on what's uh, what's happened there? There's a couple of sa- few assassination markets, many assassination markets already. Uh, apparently, there's a kill switch that can make it so those payouts don't get paid out if those events come to fruition. Uh, but that is a use case in which some people are pointing to and saying, "Hey, here's an ICO that that has worked out and uh, is actually has a usable app and is being used for the purpose uh, that that it's set out to to fulfill." Um, would you agree with that assessment? So I have a lot of thoughts on Augur. <laughs> I wrote a blog post on Augur. <laughs> that thing is sitting in my medium drafts, and I'm too scared to publish it. Just publish it. People are going to read that. They'd be like, Nick, you suck. Like, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't give a fuck what people think. I know. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm actually, I have a little bit of word eating to do. I need to eat my words on Augur because I said it would never be released, and uh, it was released. Mm-hmm. So uh, congrats to the team. Um, for a start because like I, you know, made a couple markets, wanted to test it out. It totally works. Um, I, I, I mean, we don't really know if the dispute resolution mechanism works. That hasn't been rigorously tested, but the main market creation mechanism works, which is pretty good. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people speculated that Augur would never release because the devs, you know, made a bunch of money they had a ton of ETH. Um, and then, like, why even bother? Which is the incentive problem that a ton of ICOs face mm-hmm. and will be fatal to them, I'm sure. And, I mean, that's always the, the guidance with startups. It's like if you raise too much money, then you're not going to be, like, hungry and then you're never going to produce anything good. Yeah. So, um, on the one hand, um, the Augur team deserves plaudits because they uh, they pushed, a, you know, a functioning uh, product. Yeah. Is it fully functioning though? Because I feel like uh, the first the first markets to be made were around the World Cup, and there was one game in particular where the market ran uh, longer than like the game ended, but the market was still open for like six hours, and people were able to bet on the winning team. Well, that's just the fault of the uh, the person market making creator? the market. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's no um, checks there to make sure that the markets are you know fair, or good. And right now it's just like Oracle is sort of like good faith. Like this is the outcome. Yeah. So, um, I mean, it depends how in depth you want to get about Augur. I have a lot to say about Augur. Uh, we got plenty of time. I mean, <laughs> just go for it. So, um, you know, my view of Augur is that they need to look at their competition, which is, um, if we're talking about derivatives, um, and, um, bets on sporting events, um, your competition is bookies, uh, casinos to some degree, um, and, you know, normal brokerages and equity markets, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what are the things people want to bet on? Uh, mostly they want to bet on sports. Uh, they want to bet on the prices of assets, which is just like typically you do that, you know, 
on whatever Binance or on uh, on your like Schwab brokerage. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's some other like kind of exotic stuff that people want to bet on, which is I guess where Augur, uh, you know, where you make the case for Augur. But uh, you know, they do need to consider, um, you know, m- like the 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 rival opportunity of making a bet at, at the typical venues, which would be a bookie, a casino, or a like in the public equity markets. And I think for Augur to justify its existence, it needs to be um, either better than those um, from a cost perspective or a UX perspective, which I think is extremely unlikely. Um, so then it has to compete in a different market, which is bets that people can't make at those places, right? Mm-hmm. So then that's the argument for Augur. It's like, well, you know, if you want to bet on something really exotic or strange, um, then that's, how, you know, then you have to go to Augur. Um, so then the question is, how big is that market? Um, and, um, you know, does the Oracle function perform well enough to justify that? And I think the, my suspicion is that the Oracles will not function at a sufficient standard to, um, to justify, you know, people really putting a lot of faith in the, in the mechanism. Yeah, because the one uh, Oracle problem that people so they threw out like using official sports league sites as oracles, and once you do that, you sort of put a target on those sports leagues and the people that run those websites, right? Because if people are making bets on Augur, and that the bet is going to be it's a smart contract and it's going to execute automatically based on what this oracle is saying, people pack NBA dot com and change the score to a game that may not have happened in real life. But. Yeah, it's it's inevitable, and it's why we typically defer to bookies or um, you know anyone who underwrites a bet. We that's is why we centralize those services and make them a trusted third party. It's because being an oracle is kind of tough. Yeah, um, and uh, and it makes sense that you would defer your trust to someone. And I think with Augur, you know, for it to work, it needs to be liquid. And for it to be liquid, there needs to be a significant amount of trust in Augur, the market itself, and the participants. So there needs to be like a virtuous cycle, like a positive feedback loop there. And I'm not sure if it will be able to garner the liquidity and a faithful set of reporters, um, you know, and, and a good track record of no um, Oracle failures. Yeah, you're sort of dependent on the technically able people that are already interested in cryptocurrencies also being degenerate gamblers. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I mean, the, everyone's gambling in this market. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but to, they want to gamble on other things, not yeah. just finan- or financial. I don't even financial assets. And, and I mean, you know, th- like, I think it's also a fair question whether the SEC will look into this and be like, well, like, there's markets on, like, Apple stock. That's a uh, derivative, um, you know, unregulated. So, like, should we do something about that? Um, I don't know. Like there's, there's a few points of failure. I feel that they can lean on that. Um, you know, the, the common response to that is like, Oh, it all runs on Ethereum, So it's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are other points of failure. You know, there's like in fewer processes, a lot of transactions, uh, there's a, a foundation based in the U S that can probably receive a letter in the mail from the sec, you know, um, there's a lot of ways I think that pressure can be applied if, um, if, U.S. regulators decide to do something. Yeah, the Infura thing is really interesting to me because I feel like Ethereum has found themselves, the Ethereum project has found themselves in a tight, tough spot where they basically have this centralized entity 
spinning up a lot of the nodes that are securing its network or uh, coming to consensus of what its network is. Like, what if somebody were to go to Infura's office and just unplug the servers? I mean, it's hard to know what the reliance is on Infura, mm-hmm. but I can certainly say it's a source of fragility, right? right. It's a single point of failure. Um, you never want to, if you're a decentralized network, ostensibly, you don't want to be reliant on something like that. So uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't seem particularly sustainable to me. All right. And that was our, our Infura bashing for the day. Let's get to Coinmetrics. One of my favorite resources in the space. Thank you for building it. Well, the thanks are um, owed to the developers, not me. Well, thank you to the developers that help you with Coinmetrics. So for you freaks that don't know, coinmetrics.io, incredible wealth of knowledge for, uh, or wealth of data, uh, blockchain data in particular, uh, multiple blockchains, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, Dash, Monero. 64 blockchains. Yeah, there's 64. Um, But what I really like is what you're doing on the content side and sort of jumping into this data that you're providing for free. To the, you guys have an open API, correct? Yeah, it's all free, yeah. Yeah, free data and then jumping into it um, and really trying to dissect what this data is talking about. The one uh, piece in particular that I want to talk about, or not one piece in particular, but one piece that caught my eye was the transaction uh volume estimates and sort of how batch transactions have an impact on the network. Um, and then the other piece was you diving into the UTXO sets and trying to determine how much actual economic activity is happening on these networks. Um, so can you tell me like a little bit why you started Coinmetrics and how you approach these sort of data projects that you send your on, send yourself on, I would say. Yeah. So, uh, started Coinmetrics and, um, when I was in business school as well, um, I, uh, yeah, I think the immediate pressure was that I wanted better data, of course. Um, and I couldn't find it anywhere. I like blockchain.info a lot. They have great data downloadable. Um, but that was Bitcoin specific. And I wanted to make cross-sectional comparisons between Bitcoin and other assets like Ethereum. Um, and you know, Bitinfo charts was, was, popular at the time but it was hard to extract data from it um so then i thought why don't i you know i just run a bunch of nodes and scrape the data and publish it and then i found a friend uh, who's a software engineer and he helped me do that um and so the two of us basically put it together this is in, uh, maybe uh, january 2017 mm-hmm. um and uh initially we just had like bitcoin data and the, the other utxo chains and then we graduated and now we have a whole bunch of chains and really I'm, I'm very satisfied with the depth of the data that we have right now. And, and we're continually expanding the data set and, and trying to improve it all the time. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was initially just a vanity project um, in order to get data for myself to analyze so I could have a better purchase of how the blockchains were doing. And then I figured, well, like, why don't we just publish it so anybody can use it? Um, and it's always been free, no restrictions on reuse. Um, everything's been open source, including the actual backend methodology. So um, you never really had to trust Coinmetrics. You could run the code as well um, and take data from a node and, uh, and use our, our parser um, and, uh, and you know, find the same exact results. So that was the idea was to have a sort of trust minimized source of data. 
and also just extremely easy access to um, to you know functional blockchain data which had been demystified. And uh, you know we we we've added support now for Bitcoin, all the other Bitcoin derivatives, um, Ethereum, a whole bunch of tokens on top of Ethereum. Um, EOS uh, was one we just added support for. That was pretty tough. <laughs> we just um, removed support for Ripple because we had trouble with that data set. Uh oh. Ripple is very uncooperative. <laughs> what, 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 what trouble were you running into? Well, we were trying to run a node, like a full archival node, and it's like seven terabytes or something. And what? like, we were like downloading it from their website, and like they kept banning us and stuff. It was just, it wasn't going well. And then we also had the, the data set, and there was a bunch of junk data in there because uh, it's sort of very idiosyncratic, very different. Um, and uh, in the end, we had to, uh, the data we were putting out was like just total garbage. Uh, and so we felt that that wasn't meeting our standards. So we're revisiting our, our Ripple. I mean, we're, we're still going to try and support Ripple because it's like, you know, a major chain. Um, but uh, it is major. Bill Clinton speaking at their next conference. Bill Clinton, you know, that's how you know you're, you're doing well as a blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> you get the man who enabled Graham Leach Bliley to come in and, and speak, speak on your behalf. Yeah. Uh, it's, so, fu- it's funny how... It's funny how like short-sighted they are and how unaware they are, like se- like how s- self-unaware they are to to announce that and just think like people are like, oh yeah, Bill Clinton's on their team. Let's buy Ripple. Yeah, he uh, presided over the uh, the longest peacetime economic expansion in U.S. history <laughs> <laughs> back in the nineties. So let's jump into the economic activity paper that you guys wrote. Like, so Ethereum had a huge mixer, right? That accounted for a lot of its. T- so there's a lot. So that's why I wanted to bring you in mainly was to talk about data because you're a data nerd and you've jumped into this data and you sort of understand it on a better level than most people that I've met and conversed with. And the data. I would argue a lot of data in this space, Bitcoin, Ethereum, any chain, uh, it's sort of, I don't want to say uh, it is a lot of the data is vanity metrics, but a lot of what people are publishing and pushing as uh, advertisement for these blockchains is sort of ill advertised and, and they're not really telling the full story. So with example, like Ethereum claims to have so many transactions a day, but some people argue that, a lot of a great majority of those transactions come from a mixing service that is used within the network. So yeah, the, uh, the tale of the mixer is a very interesting one. Um, so, um, I'm not using mixer pejoratively here. I'm just, um, using it as a shorthand to describe, um, the algorithmic generation of a bunch of transactions, which are designed to obfuscate, um, the origin and destination of some, amount of uh, Ether or Bitcoin. Um, I, I don't know who is the real-time, the real uh, real world um, identity, you know, linked to the mixer, but it to me it looks enough like contrived volume that I'm sort of comfortable calling a mixer. So um, in September uh, 2017, someone published a blog post on Medium called Huge Ethereum Mixer. And... Uh, it was basically arguing that they'd found um, pretty odd patterns of behavior on Ethereum. And uh, I read this with interest. 
most of the comments were saying this is nonsense actually and like ah oh, this is just an artifact of the blockchain um you know this is actually just gdax you're just looking at gdax data um but um this this um argue i think vitalik is actually in the comments there too but this medium post argued that um you know that there is all kinds of interesting patterns whereby there's a single entity which is controlling like 80% of Ethereum transaction volume in dollar terms, right? Um, and uh, I thought that was really compelling. Uh, and also since I'm interested in the ground truth about the usage of these blockchains, you know, it was, it was compelling to me. I don't like the, the like potential criminality aside, this is just an interesting data point because it would mean that um, the data I'd been looking at for months was total junk data because it was inflated by a factor of 10 or something. So then um, I eventually found transactions on Etherscan that looked super suspicious. They, they had a very particular pattern. It was three in, two out, mm-hmm. and it would go on. And, and typically they'd be in very precise amounts, which were very, you know, repeated. And they'd go on for chains of 10,000 transactions at a time. Three and two out, three and two out, three and two out, as long as you could click on Etherscan. And I'm like, well, this kind of looks like a mixer. So um, then I set my, uh, my engineers on the task to find out what it was. And I, I found that several treasuries of high-profile ICOs had been feeding transactions into that single chain, right? Really? Not naming names. So that really piqued yes. my interest. <laughs> really piqued my interest. And, uh, and so then my, uh, my devs at Coinmetrics uh, built this transaction graph on Ethereum and they created a graph of all the one-time addresses, um, which are addresses that had their only interaction with Ethereum being within a 24-hour period, entrance and exit. Mm-hmm. Um, and they um, created a graph with all the vertices being the, the transactions between those one-time addresses. And in the end, it created a supercluster of addresses, which ended up basically being linked to, well, you can infer there was a single entity doing this stuff. And uh, from that, we uh, recreated the mixer pattern, totally um, reproduced the result found in Huge Ethereum Mixer, and also on this other website called Bloxy.info. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we reproduced that effort um, and found the exact same result between about February 2017 and February 2018. Um, about 80-ish percent of all Ethereum transaction volume in dollar terms was due to this single entity shuffling Ethereum around, <laughs> which is really significant. And we felt that, you know, we had to um, subtract it from uh, the Ethereum data. So in the adjusted transaction volume figure on Coinmetrics, that subtracts out the mixer volume, mm-hmm. um, which I think is sort of a more um, authentic presentation of the data. Um, that said, we're being a little bit arbitrary because they're totally are and like were mixers on Bitcoin, which are inflating transaction volumes, but um, we haven't necessarily done the work to find them yet. Is it harder to find on Bitcoin than uh, Ethereum? Because Ethereum is what they're they're based off a state, and Bitcoin's based off a UTXO. Yeah, model. they're they're different. Ethereum's like an account model, and yeah. Bitcoin's UTXO. But uh, I, my subjective feeling is that there are fewer mixers on Bitcoin right now. Uh, and I, I, the reason we went after the Ethereum one is because I just kept running into it all the time. Mm-hmm. And it was very evident and it had a very unique sort of fingerprint. So then I wanted to investigate it. But um, 
in you know in the coming months we'll be investigating uh well, well we actually did apply these heuristics to bitcoin which should have subtracted mixer volume anyway so we probably should have subtracted it it, it might be subtracted in the adjusted estimates so bitcoin the king let's let's get on it like how much economic activity do you think is actually happening on it right now? It looks like you have between $1 and $2 billion a day um, on Bitcoin. That's a good amount. Which I think would really surprise, uh, you know, no coiners. Um, because they tend to think that these things are just nonsense. But, like, if you look at the data, they're really being used. And uh, I actually ran the numbers recently. And uh, Bitcoin right now is only one order of magnitude away from Visa's transactional volume. So what? It, it's only one 10x away in terms of uh, dollar value transaction volume per year. So Visa does about $8 trillion a year. Not throughput, but volume. Yeah. So when I say volume, I mean like in dollar terms. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, Bitcoin does $800 billion if you annualize it right now. Mm-hmm. So that's just one single order of magnitude away from Visa. Obviously, in transaction count, Visa does way, way more. Mm-hmm. But... Empirically, Bitcoin is used for huge transactions. Like, we know that people use Bitcoin to buy houses. And, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff. I don't know, actually. <laughs> but people are moving hundreds of millions of dollars around for some reason. <laughs> Probably because they houses, really trust it. I'm sure Venezuela, North Korea, and some other despot states are, are that's something what I want. I wanted. That's something I want to find out. Like, what are people doing with these billions of dollars and... Because your average Bitcoin transaction is pretty big. The, it's on like, average, how how big? Um, you can go on coin. It's if you go on Coin Metrics, it'd probably tell you that it's about um, thirty, maybe thirty thousand. Go to charts. Um, uh, yeah, it'd be in the tens of thousands. But your median Bitcoin transaction is probably um, in the is in the hundreds. But yeah, right now, what on is average? it? Third, yeah, thirty, twenty k ish. Yes. Wow, that's so, surprising. Yeah, so your average Bitcoin transaction, A, it encodes a lot of outputs normally. And the peak in January was about 115,000. Yeah, so, so you know, Bitcoin is like this industrial network. It's really not a coffee network. Um, functionally, it's used to settle huge transactions between, like, large, capacious economic entities. Maybe it's exchanges transacting with each other. I don't know. No, nah, this is the first time I've ever looked at this chart in particular. I mean, it's more informative to go to median transaction value because, you know, it's very skewed. It's a right skew. So your median transaction on Bitcoin is going to be $230 right now. Yeah. So, but if you look at your median or average Visa transaction, it's really, really small. Yeah. It's... So, you know, people compare transaction count and TPS on both networks. To me, they're, it's like apples and oranges. Bitcoin is a settlement network mm-hmm. um, that settles, you know, transactions which might represent thousands of derivative transactions which are related to the settlement. Yeah, it's what you said. You want to start using payments per day as a measurement instead of transaction value. Yeah, I, I like payments. So um, a Bitcoin transaction, people don't know this, but it, it can encode 13,000 outputs. Mm-hmm. That's the record. Um, and a, as many inputs. Um, is that a spam attack record? I mean, it was probably some kind of crazy nonsense transaction. Yeah. But uh, the important thing is that someone made it. So mm-hmm. now I have that data point. <laughs> <laughs> 
So people can make all kinds of crazy transactions. Like, yeah. So, so my view of a transaction is that it's like a, you know, this is the analogy I used in the batching piece. It's like a uh, box mm-hmm. and inside the box, you can put a bunch of envelopes and it's, you know, it's like a mail truck full of boxes and the transaction is the box. But then within that box, you have tons of letters, right? Um, I'm getting, I'm getting lost in the analogy a little bit, but uh, the point is that a transaction is not analogous to, you know, a transfer of a single unit of wealth. A uh, transaction can in Bitcoin can encode literally billions of dollars and hundreds or thousands of payments. So I, I think that we need a, a, a an awakening in terms of uh, what this data structure is and, and how it's actually used. Do you think we're getting better, uh, getting closer towards your ideal uh, usage of of this data, or do you think uh, it's getting bastardized? No, so it's getting better. Um, well, you mean the data usage or the usage of Bitcoin itself? The how people, what people uh, sort of glean from this data. We still have a lot of learning to do. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do with CM. We're trying to educate a little bit. Yeah. And it's important because there are differences. People try to compare it to apples to apples, like you were saying. To well, so here's an example, right? So click over to EOS and go to transaction count. EOS probably has about 8 million transactions in the last day. But then if you go to, um, you know, median transaction size, um, EOS median transactions are on the order of cents or even less. And the reason for this is that EOS is like stress testing their, um, what did they, didn't they, didn't they just merge a bug into their code that they didn't even realize that up their Ram by a precipitous amount. Yeah. There's some Ram drama going on. Yeah. Um, but so there's a, there's a huge discrepancy in the, those average or median transaction size in EOS. It's minuscule. And the reason for that is just because there's a lot of just like, nonsense or stress testy transactions happening on the network right now it's eight eight percent of a penny right now so there's nothing wrong with that right but it's it's then inappropriate to compare transaction count on eos to bitcoin's transaction count um and you can go to you can look at the adjusted transaction volume for both and you'll notice the eos's transaction volume on the order of about you know a, a couple hundred million a day compared to bitcoin which is in the billions so, um, so, you know, it, it, it is important to have a, take a holistic view and not just to make, um, sort of straightforward apples to apples, uh, comparisons. No. Um, and one thing we're going to segue here. One thing that, uh, has been interesting is seeing how the narratives of Bitcoin have changed throughout throughout the years and this is something you just wrote about this week you just published yesterday i believe or monday or sunday uh the visions of bitcoin correct is that what it's called yeah visions of bitcoin so that's actually one thing i'm fascinated by and i'm guilty of too is falling i don't want to say prey to these narratives but preaching and believing in these narratives at some point in my bitcoin journey uh the first narrative being that hey bitcoin is a uh, fast and cheap uh, payments network that you can use to buy coffee and what we came to find is that use case was uh, enabled purely by the fact that the network did not have as much uh, activity on it than it does today um, so let's jump into that visions of bitcoin piece how the narratives have shifted why you guys wrote this piece 
and what may be the compelling narrative of today? Well, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with believing a narrative um, because that's kind of the way we operate as humans. Yes. We seize on stories and like very reductive views of the world and we let them shape our interpretation of events and... You know, we try and, you know, constrain the world to conform to the stories that we believe. Um, and that is, you know, like a energy-saving mechanism to, re- to reduce our mental footprint or something. To reduce the amount of bullshit we have to refute or... Well, because you can't just try and reprocess... I don't know. It, it's hard to take the world as it is. We, we need to filter it, right, mm-hmm. uh, and simplify it. Um, and so that's exactly what people have done with Bitcoin and, and that's not surprising. And, um, you know, the, the motivation of the piece was just, um, to determine what those stories have been over time and their relative influence. Um, and a, a caveat on the chart at the center of this blog, this is not based on, um, any quantitative data. Um, some people responded with that critique so it, it's <laughs> i guess it sort of how looks could you like quantify data. this well exactly so i guess the problem people had with it was that it sort of looks a bit like data but what we did was we determined the narratives we you know we like this looks like a good uh post-modernist picture i think somebody like if you put this in painting form somebody would buy it uh yeah at I a mean, hefty price i i think Saifedine has a critique of modern art <laughs> you know <laughs> arguing that anything that looks like something a toddler could make is not true art you know <laughs> it's a, the fiat art is something That's, it's a problem in our world people we need to lower our time preference to fix our art according to safety there are very few problems that cannot be traced back to loose monetary policy <laughs> which is uh, kind of a compelling view when you think about it 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 i am coming more and more like in in line with safety and safety and i wound up the night before the world cup final in a dallas hotel and i was stealing stealing beers from behind to the bar while talking soccer and low tide preference with him it was an incredible night safety is a big liverpool fan um which are you a manchester guy i'm a big chelsea fan oh chelsea family's from london okay so you know him and i are football rivals Uh, but aside from that, he's a nice guy. He's okay. Um, Kidding. So I've created fiat art in this article, right? This is fraudulent art. Um, it didn't. It, there was no proof of work there, right? It's not a sculpture. I didn't have to sculpt it out of marble. So this is not modern art. <laughs> um, it's meant to be a representation of all the stories. Um, and you know, the, yeah. So as I said, the motivation is just to remind Bitcoiners that there's an interesting history there. Um, remind them of the narratives that we used to believe and that now we've sort of let go a little bit. Yes. Yeah, so if you freaks out there who can't see the chart that we're looking at, there are a total of seven narratives that uh, Nick and Hasu wrote about. Uh, eCash proof of concept, which is probably the first prevailing one. Uh, censorship resistant e-gold, which probably prevails, is the strongest narrative today. Cheap payments network is what Roger Ver and Bcash are going after. Uh, programmable shared database. Uh, that's probably why Vitalik left the uh, the project. It's because that narrative didn't come to play. Anonymous darknet currency. Bitcoin is not there yet. Uncorrelated financial asset. This is more emergent more recently. And then reserve currency for crypto. 
which has been a big narrative since the altcoin explosion in 2013. So, yeah, the idea here is that, um, you know, one thing I've noticed is that almost everybody in the sort of broader crypto industry was a Bitcoiner at one point. Um, and then they, for some reason or other, they're like, Bitcoin wasn't, um, you know, just wasn't doing it for them. And then like, ah, yeah, you know what? I'm all about IOTA now or whatever. <laughs> um, so I, I was curious as to how this is possible. Like, how could we all be under this one tent mm-hmm. back in like 2013, you know? And then everybody or so many different factions drifted away. And then, I mean, there is still a staunch set of Bitcoiners out there. You know, you're listening to them. Right here. Um, here we are. But uh, I, I wanted to know psychologically how it was that there were people that were formerly committed Bitcoiners and then they left for something or other. Um, and so my answer to this paradox is that Bitcoin is an extremely broad ideological tent. And that at that time, yes, we were united by our shared, you know, love of bitcoin but we actually had these divergent views as our predominant um belief around what bitcoin is for and so we you know and but there weren't enough conflicts back then that those differences came to light and then only subsequently through you know new and later conflicts did those differences emerge and then that catalyzed a lot of exits from bitcoin um so i honestly any um altcoin out there or cryptocurrency project, a lot of them justify their existence by virtue of the fact that they claim to be solving a problem with Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And actually, yeah, I, I have some an interesting project planned there. Are you allowed to talk about it? Yeah, so I don't know if you remember, I made this meme of these 20-sided dice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. With uh, <laughs> And each side of the dice had a different flaw with Bitcoin on the side. And people like the dice, and so now I'm actually making the dice. I love <laughs> so you know this would be the greatest gift to shit coiners that uh that that us bitcoiners could ever get so know? the idea is you roll the dice they're only 12 sided because of constraints at the dice foundry <laughs> <laughs> design constraints. how many sides did you want i wanted 20 <laughs> but they wouldn't raise the you know the box size for me <laughs> so they my dice guy had problems with my design your, your dice guy's got to get with it. Yeah. Bigger we, blocks of the way. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm manufacturing these dice um, because, you know, it's going to be a fun viral marketing stunt. I can put my, my funds logo on there, which is a, an extremely good logo. Um, and, uh, and so then the idea is that if you have a problem with Bitcoin, you roll the dice and then whatever is, you know, shows up on the dominant side then you're like, yeah, Bitcoin sucks. My project is totally going to fix this. So that's what happened with... So anyway, I'm making 500 of these. But the important point here is that this is what happened with every single cryptocurrency project ever. They're solving a perceived problem with Bitcoin. And that's why so many people that were formerly Bitcoiners left because they had a view of Bitcoin which which didn't mesh with what Bitcoin ended up becoming. Well, I won't even argue that. I would say Bitcoin didn't end up becoming what they wanted in the time frame that they wanted it i would say a lot of this is because of impatience like 
I think people are going to be able to get whatever they want out of Bitcoin. It's just going to fucking take time. Like, yeah, I mean, we, we have micro transactions now, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And Bitcoin is a payments network now through lightning and it just took a while and people are going to build, be able to build complex smart contract enabled systems on top of Bitcoin. Yeah. I, I think the programmability will absolutely come. Yeah. We're seeing it already. Exactly. And so that's what pisses me off the most is like, I like to preach patience, patience, patience. Like people in this space are completely impatient. They're either impatient or they're affinity scammers that are just outright like, Hey, Bitcoin can't do this. If I market that Bitcoin can't do this and market a coin that I create that can do that, maybe I can make a lot of money. My f- Sorry. My favorite thing to hear is all ICOs suck except for my ICO. <laughs> exactly. Right? Mine's good. <laughs> right? You hear it from everyone that markets an ICO. And it's... And they do it with a straight face. It's like you can't see the... Because nobody's the villain in their own story, man. No. Everybody's not. the good guy. But how do we... Are we wrong? Are we too patient? We, we might be the <laughs> We might be the baddies, you know? <laughs> Maybe we're wrong. I ask myself that a lot. Am I wrong? Sit there at night staring at the ceiling. It's like, whoa, ICOs are a great capital formation <laughs> mechanism. <laughs> I don't... Programmable equity. How long do you think this will go on for? Do you think it has to get to a point where Bitcoin wholly proves all these narrative use cases and says, all right, we can do everything here. We have the best network effect. Or you think the dumb money musical chairs game can go on for a while? So I don't think Bitcoin's going to eat everything. I used to think that. Don't think that now. Okay. Um, why th- did you think that and why did you change your mind? Well, you know, I just, I didn't really see why anybody would own anything else. Um, but I acknowledge that there are some projects which now have momentum and it's not going to go away. Not a lot of them, but some, you know, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the other thing is that I do see there's a difference between the things that are trying to be money, which is like Bitcoin, Litecoin, whatever, Monero, Zcash. And then the things that are trying to be Neo equity um, which is basically all ICOs. And to me, those are very actually distinct concepts. And I'm trying to push this new taxonomy whereby they are not even in the same bucket. Because right. it doesn't make that much sense for me to compare like the US dollar to like Apple stock. Uh, those are completely conceptually distinct things. Yeah. So I think ICOs should be considered, you know, relative to themselves. And then every all of the new digital currencies should be considered relative to their own benchmark and themselves. Uh, so I, I'm to like pushing for a conceptual divorce here. No, yeah, that's uh, something Matt Corral and I talk about a lot. Like he doesn't think things like Ethereum EOS should be compared to Bitcoin at all. Like, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of Ethereum fans would tell you the same, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they don't even think of Ethereum as a uh, as as a money. It's it's something entirely different. It's a it's an oil commodity, ether, particularly. Who knows what it is, but uh, <laughs> the definition's changing every. Uh, but but from the ICO world, you know, I'm short term, short and medium term, hyper bearish. But then long term, I do like the concept of a corporation which operates according to algorithmically codified rules, um, and is essentially equity on the blockchain. I actually, I really do like that. I just haven't seen a good instantiation of that yet. <sighs> So I was pumped I about like to, the DAO, man. I loved the DAO. Did you? Yeah. 
2016. Did you fall for Peter the Tool Tools pitch? So Steven. <laughs> Steven. So the Dow was like one of the things that got me really fired up. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is like a venture fund and you vote with your money and like everybody shares in the spoils. Um, so for like 15 minutes there, I was like so excited about the Dow. The Dow, if it were to come to fruition and not have that fatal flaw that it did have in the code like you're you're betting on the wisdom of the crowd there like does the wisdom of the crowd exist and is it is it wise to follow the crowd is not wise no the crowd's pretty dumb yeah um although you know finance people will tell you that the, the crowd is correct you know according to efficient markets um but yeah i mean the the dow just was it was too early right and I've, well, I've said this. I give it ten years, you know. Yeah, and that's one of my argument for a lot of these projects. It's just like you're too fucking early. Be patient. Let again. I'm a Bitcoin maximalist. Obviously, I don't even want to say I'm biased. I'm just saying I have strong views. Like I think that a lot of people are just way too impatient. Just let the protocol level of Bitcoin and the layers on top of it get built out. It's going to take a little over a decade. I'm sorry. Sorry that everything you guys wanted out of the box is not there in Bitcoin. Time preference. Exactly. And I think everybody's going to get it. But I just hope in the meantime that all these ICO scams and everything else doesn't bastardize it so much that it becomes so unpalatable that people cannot come back to it. You ever worry that you surround yourself with people that have the exact same views <laughs> as a consequence? No. You're not exposed to any dissenting opinions. I Believe me. I've got people There's kind of a selection bias on this show. Uh-huh. You should... Yeah, well, actually, I'm not... No, maybe, I've had, Do you have some... You've never listened to this goddamn show, it's Nick. It's true. I don't do podcasts. I've had Ethereum developers on here. And I have more planned coming forward. That shows a lot of promise. You know... That's fair. That's yeah. fair. I had one of the uh, one of like the main devs of my crypto on here. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, Will O'Byrne. Shout out, shout out the brothers O'Byrne. One works at Chaincode and one now works at Blockstack, but worked at uh, my Ether wallet for a while. Wow. And then my crypto. That's like the pot of a movie or something. It is. It is funny. The the, the O'Byrne brothers getting some tick on the pod right now. I love how it's uh, like a. A dichotomy between them like and they're in the same space but they have very different views but they're very respectful towards each other and have very very intense and valuable conversations at least the ones that i've been a part of with the both of them if i had a brother he'd probably be like a verge fan or something <laughs> <laughs> i have um, a cousin who's a ripple fan and i have to yell at him i think lot. everybody has one of those <laughs> Bill Clinton's going to buy our bags, man. <laughs> he'll, he'll use the speech fees to buy our bags for us. Those don't come cheap. Uh, so let's jump into Castle Island. Uh, we can't talk specifics, but you were raising a VC fund. Uh, and what is what is your mentality between behind, excuse me, between, what is your mentality behind investing in this space? What are you looking for? Uh how did you get to this point where this is your approach and are you uh hyper bullish of hardware in the future? That's what I want to know in particular. Hardware is great. Love hardware, but uh, the highest leverage businesses are software. 
Um, that's just the nature of uh, tech investing. Sure. Um, yeah. So I uh, I didn't think um, I didn't think a year ago I would be uh, working for a VC fund. Um, so it's definitely uh, pretty surreal. Where where did Nick a year younger see himself going? Let's see. What was I doing a year ago? Um, a year ago, I was just finishing my uh, I was just finishing uh, my uh, my master's degree and master's in finance. Uh, you were at Fidelity, correct? Too. Yeah. Then I joined Fidelity. Okay. Then I joined Fidelity in uh, in fall 2017. Did you get your master's at St Andrews too? Edinburgh, which is also in Scotland. Okay. I like Scotland. It's a great place. Why are you uh, particular towards Scotland? Well, um, my my family is British, even though I don't sound British. So I figured I don't. Go. You sound like what is your accent? I can't tell. It's kind of a mishmash. Where? How long have you lived in the states? Like fifteen years or something. Okay. A long time. So oh. I'm, it's like a Maryland accent, I guess. I don't know. Are you in the Mass area or? Well, I live in Boston. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe that's infected. Where did you live here? Though? Like growing up, I grew up in uh, in the D.C. area. Okay, yeah, yeah. You got like that Northern Virginia. Oh really? I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to assume anything. That sounds like sounds like you smoke cigs every once in a while. No, I don't. I don't inhale you anything. Got, you got like a cowboy. Hey. What's going on here? That's just because I've been doing too much talking today. <laughs> All the podcasts. All the podcasts is the only... I thought this was... Uh, we're talking about podcast scarcity. Uh, a Nick Carter podcast appearance is probably one of the most scarce things you'll find in the world. The most. There is one of them. <laughs> Even less. There's like 60% of one. We're not... Yeah, we've got it. We've got an hour to go. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Um, back to Castle Island. What's your mentality? So uh, actually, wait. Back up. A year ago, what was your mentality? You never thought you'd end up here. So um, here's a funny story. Um, I when I went into my master, I did a master's in finance. And when you start that, you typically it was only one year program. So what you do is you you jump into the finance recruiting schedule, um, which is not fun. Sounds terrible. And when I say finance, I mean legacy finance, yeah. old finance. Mm-hmm. We're in the we're in the new world now, you know. <laughs> but in the old world, you have to do things by their rules. Uh, so you you go to class, you know, you're doing this and that, and also you're doing like a whole bunch of interviews at the same time. It's just a mess. And um, it was like September 2016. You apply to all the bulge bracket banks, to the Goldmans and the Credit Suisses. And uh, that sucks. And then you go for interviews, also sucks. And then, uh, so what happened with me was I eventually made it through um, to the final round. I went to a super day at Fidelity UK, Fidelity International. They have a Fidelity USA and then Fidelity International. And so then I went to the super day, you know, you do a math test, you do three interviews, and then they send half of the people home at lunch, which is super brutal. (laughs) Because they're sitting there eating lunch. And then they just someone comes in, they rattle off a bunch of names, like get out of here. <laughs> I feel like this is like America's Next Top Model. Yeah, it, it was rough. So I made it to the final round, right? And then you sit down for two hours and you do a stock pitch. So you like you have to read a 10K, which is an annual report for a uh, a just a generic corporation. 
Um, and so mine was like some horrible beverage company, which I didn't know anything about. And then you have to pitch it to, uh, to like a director of research or something. How are their EBITDA multiples? Um, they're, they're okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, they were like just, it's just a very, very generic beverage company. And, uh, so I, I, I was like pretty dumb back then. So I, I totally failed the stock pitch in the end. I don't think they, uh, they hired many analysts that year. Um, so I went through all that nonsense and like, didn't make it. Um, and then I'm like, all right, screw this legacy finance. I'm done with you. (laughs) (laughs) Crypto finance. Here I come. Um, and should so we then, be worried? <laughs> I mean, this was also right in the aftermath of Brexit as well. So, um, the, the London financial sector was in decline. Mm-hmm. So that, that's what I blame on me not getting hired into, uh, into old finance. Were you going, were you going to move back to London? Yeah, I was going to, I was looking for jobs in London. Yeah. yeah. And so then that didn't work. So then I'm like, all right, whatever. I'm just going to focus on crypto stuff. And, um, you know, a year later, I ended up getting hired at Fidelity USA to work on their crypto fund, basically. Uh, so it's just like it swings and roundabouts, you know. And Fidelity is actually one of the few first banks to experiment. Like, I th- think Fidelity might be one of the first banks to spin up a node in round one. Mike, Fidelity mined a bunch of bitcoins. Yeah, with twenty-one with a twenty-one computer, but not with twenty-ones. No, no, with legit. With legit, I thought they were running twenty-one computers. Those things didn't mind anything. They I know. Sucked. Well, believe me. Well, hey, earn.com twenty-one. It gets a lot of flack. Shout but out, shout out earn because uh, <laughs> I earned, <laughs> I earned a bunch of Bitcoin answering surveys <laughs> on earn. Right. Shout out earn. But the twenty-one computer in particular was actually, while it didn't. Uh, it didn't net you a lot of Bitcoin from a mining perspective. It did teach you how to interact with the Bitcoin blockchain from uh, the terminal pretty pretty well. It was a good, it was a good experiment for me. I have uh, an ancient twenty one computer. Everybody's that, got one of those. that'll one day yeah. be in a, in a museum. But uh, so Fidelity was mining legit, like legit. had ant miners running and stuff like that. Not gonna say the brand, but uh, legit mining. Yeah, hell yeah, fuck yeah, yeah. Yeah, Fidelity was like, Fidelity cares, man. <laughs> Good. Thank yeah. you. At least somebody fucking cares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so JPM, you know, Jamie Dimon's out there trashing Bitcoin. His daughter's buying it. Abby Johnson's out here giving speeches at consensus about how amazing Bitcoin is. Abby Johnson's a saint. So the only reason I went to legacy finance to, to be an analyst, crypto analyst, not in the old meaning of the term, but yeah, whatever, um, was because I knew that Fidelity was one of the good guys. Um, and they still totally are. They're hard to come by in this space, especially from a, from a incumbent banking company. Yeah, I mean, most of them are really slow to move and pivot and et cetera. And Goldman now has like the parade of man buns opening a, um, <laughs> a Bitcoin <laughs> trading <laughs> Might have to edit that one. (laughs) Might have to edit that one. Oh, that's not getting edited. (laughs) It's it's incredible. But so so you have a lot of Johnny come latelys in finance world, you know. BlackRock's like, we're gonna make an ETF now. Oh, Larry Fink's not abreast of that, apparently. He'll figure it out soon enough. (laughs) They go where the money is. But Fidelity, you know, they're we'll see what happens, but you know, they they care. 
They do. So you're at Fidelity. It's about a year, or less than a year ago now. How the fuck did we get to Castle Island? Um, yeah, so I, I was sitting there writing uh, research reports on Bitcoin and Ethereum. Like, what are, what are these things? How do they work? Is anyone using them? What are they for? Um, so I guess I was the first crypto asset analyst at a, you know, bulge bracket bank. Um, meanwhile, the other banks are doing uh, private blockchain initiatives. <laughs> we didn't bother with that stuff. You guys didn't engage with uh, yeah, RCE? So what is it? R R three. Yeah, we R3. didn't do that. We didn't yeah. do that nonsense. Um, and so then, uh, you know, we had the opportunity to spin out the fund and do it as a, as a more entrepreneurial, build a franchise kind of thing. Myself and my partner Matt Walsh, and uh, you know, jumped at the opportunity. How did you meet Matt? Uh, Matt hired me at, at Fidelity. He's my boss at Fidelity. Oh hell yeah! Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, Castle Island is um, not an island. <laughs> It's a kind of a peninsula type thing. Why Castle Island? So as a um, name, Matt just Matt liked it. I like it too. I had some alternative suggestions, but they were too. What out. were they? What could have been? Um, I liked uh, Starling Ventures. I think someone took that already. But Starlings like they like flock in these like formations, and to me that's like a like, you know, like a funny analogy for like the the nodes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. I usually like to go when I'm naming uh, uh, prospective companies with Latin words that uh, are, that most people don't know. Uh, okay. What, what's a good Latin word? What do you got? Uh, Acer, like Swift. Okay. Right. Or are you like traditional Latin or? I don't know any Latin. So. You don't know any Latin? Oh, I mean, I, I think I, meant, I was meant to learn some in, in middle school, but... You know. I took five years of Latin and I could not. That uh, is an excessive amount of Latin. I took a lot of Latin. Eighth through senior year in high school. Uh, Did you learn all the declinations? The declinations, the... Uh, uh, see, I can't even pronounce it now. The verbs, the declensions. That's what, that's what they're about. Declinations. I, declensions. I, learned La- I went to a French school, so I learned Latin in French. Well, it's best to learn Latin first, and then you can spread out from there. So I found learning Spanish after learning Latin was a lot easier. Well, because it teaches you about um, the Because well, the subjunctive is itself a declination. Declension? Declension, yes. Yeah. So you, it's the foundation of Spanish, all those. Declension, I'm trying to think of like the, the, the word for, I mean, verbs, like what you, when you break down verbs, what the hell? I can't think of it right now. I took five years of Latin. It's I can very read, useful for I, grammar, And it's true what though. they say. Like, I can, le- I can read Latin better than I can speak it. Like, if you gave me a Latin phrase, I'd be able to, like, eh, I know, like, four words in there. You should read, you should have a reading of Latin on your next podcast. We're going to read uh, the Catalan Conspiracy, uh, jumping into, uh, who was it? Cicero. Cicero's Catalan Conspiracy. Catalan tried to take down Cicero, uh, and Cicero had one of the best orations of all time that was written in Latin and then translated by a bunch of uh, high school students in North Philly around 2008, 2009. Um, so if you guys are ever interested in learning Latin, I, uh, I suggest starting out with Cicero's Catiline Conspiracy. There's a really good trilogy on Cicero, um, yeah. like a fictionalized trilogy. Let's jump into it. We talk a lot about books here. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Oh, have, as long as it's not Sapiens, man. No. <laughs> the only VC to never read Sapiens is yeah. sitting across the I don't right read now. Sapiens. 
um, yeah, t- you know that I, I'm try. I forgot who wrote it, but it's like Imperium, um, the great, great like fictionalized history of Cicero's life. Yeah, it's, uh, Roman history fascinates me because it's very analogous to American in the modern age. I think because uh, we're right at the precipice. Exactly. You know, exactly. right at the fall. It's coming. Didn't know it was falling to too late. Exactly. You can only tell in retrospect, but like people don't like to talk about this. The bit that I like about Roman history is uh, what they did to Carthage, man. That was like not cool. Let's jump into it. Well, they just like Carthage, you know, dared to stand up, stick up to Rome. And then they just utterly obliterate it (laughs) in every way possible. (laughs) Right? Well... They were only able to do that until uh, their armies got so spread out and so spread thin, and their currency, uh, as a as a, not a reaction to that, but at the same time as their army was getting spread thin, their currency was as well. Oh yeah, there's a there's a story in there about the devaluation of the denarium yeah. for exactly. sure. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. They were dumbing down the denarium. They were melting it down and never metals devalued in. the denarium, man. Just don't do it. Don't do it. You know, that's why we need coded sound money. And that's why we're here talking today. Dollar is the denarium. (laughs) (laughs) Let's jump into that, though. So a lot of people think, not the denarium in particular, but the dollar in particular. A lot of people think it's a sacred golden cow that'll never be touched. How could something like the denarium happen to the dollar? In your thoughts, is something like that happening? Well, and there there are certain notable candidates for Congress right now, which are you know pledging to um, finance um, almost unlimited government expenditure by virtue of some mysterious taxation, which is just going to materialize. Um, there, there's some. There's this idea that these unfunded liabilities are going to pay for themselves somehow through the productivity of the USA. As if we haven't already mortgaged our future, um, you know, through the trillion-dollar Iraq war and et cetera. Um, Multi-trillion. I, 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 where's Safedine when you need him, you know? <laughs> Safedine no, for Congress. I think you're, you're referring to a woman who is in the Bronx. and. I keep this. I keep my podcast appearances non-political. Okay. We're not going to jump into it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, more generally, there's this idea that, the, you know, the U.S. isn't like a household, so you're not bound by the same constraints. But you can't just continue with this uber-loose monetary policy and not have any uh, consequences at all. No, I would agree, too. But with that being said, have we had any consequences up to this point? Like, that's the thing. Like, people have been trying to call tops on equity markets, like, tops on uh, the U.S. dollar per se, like well, for for decades now, like hey, this isn't sustainable. This isn't sustainable. Is it a an instance where it's just sustainable until one day it's not, and it all comes down to one day, or is there like a a realization where, and this sort of ties into my Bitcoin thesis, like I've been saying since 2013, like there's gonna be a great rotation from fiat denominated currencies to cryptocurrencies, and over time that is evolved to fiat denominated currencies to bitcoin in particular like well if if you look at monetary tightness um um i i think the u.s is actually 
um, doing better than its peer central banks. So if you look at the ECB oh. or the BOJ, um, or, BOJ uh, is dog shit. or the Bank of England, um, it's absolute nonsense what they're doing. Uh, and the Fed looks like an angel relative to them. Well, well, most important part in that is relative. Like, yeah. So where does relativity this, come in? A, a collective mania has seized on all the yeah. central bankers of the world as they re- tried to recover from 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the U.S. comparatively has actually been a bit more restrained. So um, I don't expect the dollar to to fail imminently. I, I expect uh, emerging market debt to 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 be the first source of the contagion. I think you're seeing that a little bit in Chinese markets right now. Yeah, what's what in particular? I've been following Chinese markets recently. Uh, there's just a huge amount of uh, of sort of shadow banking in China, so it's hard to keep track of the debt. And you know, if you're an economist in China and you make a negative macro prediction, that's frowned upon. So it's essentially layered fragility upon fragility. Um, and uh, not to mention, the ruling party in China predicates their legitimacy on the continued almost double-digit economic growth of, uh, of GDP there. So they've kind of backed themselves into a corner. Um, you know, they, they refused to enter a recession in, in 2000 or 2009. And um, at certain point, you know, you, you do have to face the music, though. And uh, Chinese, uh, you know, debt ratios, uh, consumer debt to GDP, corporate debt to GDP are, are, are truly extreme right now. Atrocious. So I, I think that's likely, and not just China, but just emerging markets more generally. And I think that's likely where the next crisis actually comes from. Uh, you know, the financial crisis in 2009 was catalyzed by the U.S. and it percolated to the world from there. I think we'll see the inverse this time. Yeah, but I would also say I completely agree. Like I think it's going to start maybe China. Who knows exactly where. Like, But... With that being said, like I don't think the Fed can can unwind what they've what they've wound. No, I don't. I don't think it's possible. I don't think they can raise rates to the market reaction would be disastrous. I don't think they could ever go back above three percent or something like that. Who knows what's? I we're in an unprecedented monetary regime, and the path forward is more unprecedented. Monetary let's, reaction. Let's dive into that. The only path forward is cheaper and cheaper. Not cheaper and cheaper, but you cannot raise the interest rate over a certain point, which would make it literally impossible to pay back the debts you've accrued in that low interest rate regime. We've sat through a long nine-year economic expansion, and we haven't raised rates. Exactly. We haven't given ourselves that shot of Because uh, if they do, they are fucked. Well, it's because... Uh, we never deleveraged from 2009 almost we we didn't want to take our medicine um and as as a consequence we're sitting here more leveraged than ever and uh the asset price explosion you've seen is is a consequence of that all right so here's maybe the question i'm getting at relatively speaking in 2008 so america's policy or the, the federal reserve's policy in 2000 excuse me let's go back 2007 2006 before Lehman Brothers failed comparatively to what it is today is it as is it as robust and as uh, sort of what's the word I'm looking for do they have the optionality today that they did in 2006 before before 
before. They've fired all the bullets that they had. Exactly. They, they've got nothing left in the chamber. Yeah. And how does that play out in the long term? That's what everybody's wondering right now. Yeah. Uh, negative rates, abolish cash, and start confiscating you know, bank account savings, Cypress style. Who knows? It's we're in a completely unprecedented monetary world. But that's but that's what you just. Uh, I I completely agree, and I see, and that's what scares the shit out of me. Because you said, comparatively speaking, we're well off, like very well off. But if you were to have this conversation in two thousand six, two thousand seven, like, hey, ten years into the future, we are going to be a decade into a uh, twenty five to seventy five bips federal fund rate regime, uh, and we sort of need to raise these rates. Like what's going to happen and be like, uh, well, it's because monetary policy or credit cycles are 10 year cycles and political cycles are four year cycles. So, okay. Um, it's short. Ooh, let's dive into this. This is interesting. Well, just, it's my view that, you know, mediating your, um, electoral system through these shorter cycles leads to a culture of short termism, which in of itself, um, ends up exposing you to bubbles just by its very essential nature. Um, and that's, you know, in my view, part of the reason we have the, these disastrous credit cycles because long-term thinking is discouraged. Because why would you want to reward your successor? Exactly. As opposed to spending big today. How do we fix this? Oh, Do we fix it? I don't see a fix within our w- without altering the the nature of the, the the federal system in the U.S. I mean, just the government in general, or the way the Federal Reserve's set up. Well, yeah, I mean, ever since we um, have Bretton Woods in '71, um, we uh, we've been in in this boom bust cycle with, with actually extreme monetary shocks, which were which are more significant now than they were before. So, if anything, we're getting worse at monetary policy, right? There's a great study by uh, Deutsche Bank, long-term asset return, uh, Jim Reed. It's pretty ironic. Um, yeah, but <laughs> but it's it's super good. And and you you read through this thing, you realize that um, ever since Bretton Woods two was implemented, um, we've been dealing with more economic shocks, not less. Yeah, and it feels like there's the economic shocks have been working on a fractal. So you get from like eighty seven to the Latin American and Russian currency crisis of 97 to the recession of 2001 the recession of 2008 and it's like boom, sounds boom, like boom, technical boom. analysis to me alright alright <laughs> TA is frowned upon <laughs> but it does seem like it's becoming more frequent and more more powerful with every with every correction yeah, I'm not calling a top. I, we, this, uh, no, there's no use in calling tops. Yeah. There's no use. It's just like a, an observation of like, and that's like one thing that I think about a lot because we were just born into this. Like we literally just like came out like, hey, this is the system I was born into. Like what the fuck is going on here? And there's nothing up until this point, I would argue. I think we are trying to actively change the structure uh, through which we live our lives. But for the first 20 years of our lives, we were just thrown into this and like, Hey, you had to react to the way the system works. And you know, who wrote my macro economics textbook 
when I was uh, I dropped out of econ in uh, in undergrad. I, I did philosophy instead. Milliken. Uh, but uh, the author of my textbook was uh, Paul Grugerman himself. <laughs> <laughs> Who wrote an awesome op-ed today? Really great piece on Bitcoin. You know, <laughs> he demonstrates a, f- a sound no, understanding. There's no intrinsic value. It's just you know the <laughs> bit that gets me is how he resolutely refuses to actually learn about Bitcoin. No, he doesn't all need to. He doesn't need all to. All these years, he's a fucking op-ed journalist in the New York Times. His salary is paid for. He doesn't give a shit. Yeah, I think Taleb has a word for those guys. And IYI, IYI, man. But so the, the new myth in this one is that actually making a transaction in Bitcoin is extremely costly because <laughs> you got a mine to make your transaction. It's dumbfounding how dumb like, well, it's just a, he, he, he doesn't care to learn. Right. Yeah. Do you um, think that's a, that's like a, a, a guard for a lot of people that it, well, yeah, because you can believe a falsity much more easily if you refuse to actually learn about the ground truth. That's true. So that's, that's why people don't want to know facts about Bitcoin's usage, for instance, because it interferes with their view of the world. Uh, no coiners or actual Bitcoiners? No coiners. Okay. They don't want to know that Bitcoin does $2 billion a day. No. Because that doesn't make sense to them. How could anyone trust that system? Two billions of dollars a day go through it. But isn't that crazy Like to have that view? Like, How can anybody trust that system where my mind, I don't want to say it's convoluted, but it's gotten to a point where I'm like, how can anybody trust this traditional system? Like, Yeah, I had this great... So the only thing I bought with my crypto takings was a couch, right? From uh, Crate and Barrel, some real high roller stuff here. I mean, I would, I you know, I'm fine with the eBay couch life, right? Or not eBay, but that Crate uh, and Barrel couch life, though. With uh, IKEA, so I'd be totally fine with an IKEA couch. But the girlfriend was like, "No, um, we're going to Crate and Barrel. We're getting a custom couch." So you know, with my Verge and IOTA takings. Just kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So we went and we bought a couch, and I had a great. Great traditional legacy market story. Um, you know how when you make a big purchase at a store, you're always like terrified because you think they're going to decline your card and then you're just going to look like an idiot? Yeah. 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 Happened to me. So uh, we're, we're buttoning down this like expensive couch purchase. And the guy's like, sir, your, uh, your card's not working. I'm like, I promise, you know, I, I like have a job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good for it, bro. Um, and, uh, and it, it didn't work cause my card like thought that it would, f- that my, my bank could not believe that, that I would buy be buying a couch. a couch. They're like, no, Nick, you, uh, you don't buy couches, dude. You buy like pizza, you know, beer. You, you, you like, clearly you do not buy couches. You're not the kind of person declined. So I, uh, I was, I was rejected in front of my girlfriend, in front of her parents. Oh no. They're like, wow. Her parents this, uh, were there? This Nick fella, like, yikes. <laughs> like, I thought you said he had a job. <laughs> I um, thought you said he was a VC. <laughs> so, um, so I went home, told two of my legs, called my bank. It's like, Hey, can you unfreeze me? Cause then the whole thing stopped working. Fraud alert. Um, so, um, you know, it, several days later, I finally got the thing like unlocked and like went back. I'm like, yeah, I'd like the couch now, please. Oh, it was a mess. That sounds like a terrible experience. 
It was not good. And you know what? It was the fault of uh, probably ultimately the Federal Reserve. You know, I hold them responsible. You know what, Janet? Janet, if you're listening out there, I know you are. Will you please stop this madness? We're just trying to buy couches out here. So Janet spoke at my um, commencement when I graduated. Really? The Janet Yellen. Grat was, uh, you she can fact you. check this. St. Andrews 2014 commencement speech. Janet Yellen. How inspired were you? I didn't know who she was at the time. You didn't know who Janet <laughs> Yellen was at that time? I didn't pay attention. Are you fucking kidding me? No, I wasn't paying attention. Um, but I, I reflected on that many years later, and I'm like, huh, Janet Yellen spoke of my commencement. <laughs> I was like 10 yards away from her. I had one of the Hyatt heirs speak at my graduation. It was the most boring That's graduation speech. That's really fun. Speech. Hyatt, like the hotel? The hotel, yeah. That's pretty cool. It was like, eh, eh. Yeah, I, I didn't even go to my uh, my graduation when I, I graduated from uh, business school. I freaked my parents out. This oh, is yeah. a story for another. We're not going to get into it. I graduated, but good job. Yeah, they. Uh, I signed up for a graduation uh, procession way later than I should have. Oh, I see. So I was not placed in alphabetical order. And my <laughs> name comes very, very early in the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What um, galaxy? What are they doing? Yeah, they're in New York. They're here in New York. They do all kinds of stuff. Who works at them? Other than Michael Jordan. As Novogratz. Oh, yeah, stuff. Nova. Oh, yeah. I actually met... Yeah, it's Nova's fun. That's why I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. I actually met a, a girl that works for him last weekend. We had a very long, interesting conversation. I think they went public in Canada. Did they? Yeah. Re- like this week? No, previously. Well, they they pivoted from becoming a fund to becoming a merchant bank, correct? Big yeah. time. Yeah. I mean, they're funding things like BlockFi, which... I'm kosher with me. Um, it's funny you say kosher. It's like BlockFi is like the better version of salt, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think salt's kind of falling apart, right? That's what I hear. That's the word on the street. I'm not here to... That's inevitable for pretty much every uh, ICO, though. Yeah, and I talked to Drew from Unchained last week, and he was really uh, Unchained Capital in Austin. And he's really illuminating on what they're doing from lending perspective. And that is a needed service on top of Bitcoin. Big time. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm in the camp. I'm not in the uh, the extreme Austrian camp. I'm in the camp that um, I'm, credit creation on Bitcoin is, is actually acceptable. Uh, I'm in that camp, too, as long as the underlying monetary system that's being... That the credit is being built on top of is sound. I think that's totally right. agreed. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I I think Bitcoin banks will eventually be a thing. I, we have some evidence of that. Um, Hal Finney predicted this. Hal, if Hal predicted it, you know, let it be. Probably going to come true. Yeah, right? <laughs> Hal knew, man. You see, you look into the chart of the narratives. Hal was on the digital gold camp from day one. It might uh, make sense to pick some up if it catches steam, you know? Yeah, one day, right? Yeah. 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 How new? So, Rest in peace, Hal. We're going to bring you back to life. We know you're frozen right now. All we have to do is meme Bitcoin into being the global monetary standard, and then you know your your holdings will eventually be able to finance R and D to bring them back. I think this is possible. We can do it. We're gonna we're gonna bring back Hal. We're gonna bring Hal back to life. We're gonna get Ross out of prison. It's gonna happen before we die. My um, measure for Bitcoin success is the day that we free Ross. 
Honestly. And I think that's going to be one of the key days in Bitcoin history because he is a non-violent offender. And he just got completely expunged of the charges for hiring a hitman. Yeah. That so basically led to the, his like, The thing that was the bad thing that he allegedly did, but according to the U.S. court of law, did not do. Uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> has now been dropped. So um, hang on. Why is he in life without possibility of parole? There's a lot more. Double life. Two lives. Think He's about this. Two lives. Anders Brevik got 32 years. Right. Does that do from the Netherlands? Um, yeah, like uh, Sweden or something. Yeah, yeah. So that dude only got thirty-two years and not automatic um, life. Yeah. What? Yeah, yeah. Like possibility of parole, but probably won't get it. But like on the, over here in the USA, Ross Ulbricht, who wrote some code for a website, is getting railroaded by the USG. <sighs> so that is, you know, when the first Bitcoin president gets in. You what know, is a Bitcoin president? President who owns Bitcoin. That's true. They, I think... I actually wouldn't be surprised if Trump owns Bitcoin. Probably so, got some. Probably got some. some. Somewhere. I went to the Trump Tower today. <laughs> Why? Because I was trying to find coffee to get coffee with, uh, with my boy Matt. And uh, there's like no coffee shops around there. Yeah, you met in the middle of hell. Trump Tower is in the middle of hell. Yeah, that place really like just the the whole neighborhood. Fifty third and Madison. Like, really, like very lot of tourists. I yeah. I don't know New York, right? So yeah, so you went to the worst part of. So New I York. went to the nearest coffee shop, which is Starbucks, in the bowels of Trump Tower, and it was amazing because you have the escalators where um, he went down. You know when he started his campaign, mm-hmm. and there were like two hundred tourists just going up and down the escalators. <laughs> They're like, look, I'm, I'm like trying to start my campaign. Oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, so I went to the Starbucks. Uh, it uh, it was unremarkable. That sounds very unremarkable and sort of depressing, if you ask me. Yeah. It, uh, the whole thing seemed like it was from the 80s, actually. But <laughs> it hadn't been as updated in a long time. Not, uh, Trump has a very cheap 80s gold aesthetic you know he's stuck in the, in the in the guppy boys stage of his life and the yeah. escalator was very narrow yuppie not guppy very narrow escalator where did, where did all the freaks come from marty <sighs> to be honest shout out my buddy zach he would call oh, yeah. us all freaks he was a friend he would just refer to us as freaks and it's sort of out a, for zach you know pour some pour some in my mouth for zach okay he started that, and I sort of like just like right when I started the podcast, it was like a buzzword for me. I was like, "Yeah, you fucking freak." Like, what happened to to Barstool Marty, man? Bitcoin Marty's still a thing. Uh, I think Bitcoin Marty will be back at Barstool's offices at some point when the Bitcoin price rises above twenty thousand dollars. Bring back <laughs> Bitcoin Marty at Barstool. <laughs> if you're listening, PFF commenter, PFT commentator. PFT commentator, bring back Marty, bro. Okay. I, I've I left Barstool on the best of terms possible. You know, we uh, I'm not on brand for them. Bitcoin is not on brand. Bitcoin is very niche. Bitcoin is a sport. All right, it's a blood sport. <laughs> <laughs> it's an intellectual blood sport. You're, We're just shitting like, on Prez, Dave, Dave. If you're listening, I'm sure you are. Dave's a freak, like the rest. Dave's of us. Dave's a freak, but I miss Barstool. Love Barstool. Bring yeah. him back, fellas. I don't know much about uh, Barstool's brand, you know, or content strategy, but, uh, you know, Marty, Marty over here. Marty. I like Marty. Marty. 
Marty. Uh, he uh, he knows his stuff. I try. I did actually. This is a funny thing that I can say now. I'm pretty sure I can disclose. Somebody tried to convince Barstool to do an ICO, and I literally had to go to them and be like, "If you do an ICO, this is the dumbest thing you could fucking do in the world." Good job. I think everybody has a story about a deflected ICO. You know, it's uh, it's important. You, it's something you have to go through, and some people fail, right? Because they they do the ICO. Telegram. <laughs> Kick. <laughs> Hypercube routing, man. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, the the rest of us, which are slightly more strong-willed, mm-hmm. resist the, the lure of the ICO. Right? Well, it's not even a lure to me. It's like, what the fuck are you people doing? Like, how do you think? Just like, why would someone give you money for nothing, man? Let's get back to... Let's get sort of legitimate here. Castle Island, what is your investment strategy? What are you looking for in particular in the market right now as a VC in the Bitcoin cryptocurrency space? Man, so we like only got to CIV like late on in the podcast, huh? That's, it happens. Like Dhruv was on last week for Unchained. He literally like we walked to the bar and was like, I literally forgot everything I need to say about my company. I was like, that's the way it works. Dhruv is great. I like his I love Dhruv. It's great. You'll you'll really like. You should listen to the first tales from the crypt episode next week when he dives in how he how he dives into how he created those uh, huddle waves. You know my policy on podcasts. I know, I know, I know, I know. So uh, CIV Castle Island, um, not a castle, not an island, um, and that's you know that's sort of on theme, right? Because we're like the anti VC. We're not doing ICO pre-sales. We're not doing ICO flips. Um, we're actually investing in equity um, as opposed to just buying up a bunch of tokens. Um, we, uh, we're focusing mostly on the protocols we think were sustainable, and, and Bitcoin is one of those. I mean, you know, if not the key one. Um, you know, we're internally benchmarking ourselves against Bitcoin. Uh, that's that's the goal I'm setting myself. I perform the asset itself, and um, I, I, you know, like that's not an easy challenge at all. But to invest in startups building on Bitcoin, you do have to benchmark that against Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. So we just have to expect that Bitcoin is going to continue its advance over the next few years. But there will come a time when your average startup dollar invested in Bitcoin startup outperforms Bitcoin because Bitcoin can't grow forever. Mm-hmm. But it will inculcate a world where, you know, this amazing economic institution exists that startups can build on top of. So I think there does come a time where startups start to outperform Bitcoin. But even if you look at the Coinbase seed round, it did not perform Bitcoin. Right? Really? There's very, very few Bitcoin-related startups that are performed. The underlying. How far from that future are we? Obviously, not too far. I wouldn't be raising for fund if you know I didn't think we were there. So I, I, you know, I think Bitcoin still has growth left in it, but I do think there are amazing generational businesses that can be built on it. And and the way I think of Bitcoin is I think of it as an institution. So you have other institutions. Markets are one. Uh, corporations, the state. Um, and I think Bitcoin is a radically new institution altogether that enables economic coordination in a way that hasn't existed before. Mm-hmm. And it enables people 
worldwide to transact with each other without having to depend on any other third party for trust. And that sounds trivial, but it means that, you know, if you, for whatever reason, are penalized by the U.S. Uh, financial system, you can still transact. You know, you're Russian, you want to buy property in Dubai, you can do that. Um, for the first time ever, you, you know, you're like a, a business in Singapore, you need to trans- transact, you know, send money to a subsidiary in Venezuela or something, you can do that too. And that hasn't really existed before. And it's not just about arbitraging, you know, uh, jurisdictional rules. Um, it's about transacting with third parties in a way that doesn't require you to trust anyone involved in that. And I think that's big, and I think that's why there are roughly $2 billion of transaction volume on Bitcoin a day. And I don't think Bitcoin, the protocol, will subsume all the potential use cases. I think many companies will be built that uh, mediate your you know, interaction with the blockchain itself and, uh, and provide you know, extremely useful services. You've got wallet companies, you've got startups building on Litecoin right now, you've got hardware companies, you've got like nodes as a service, you have hardware, physical plug and play full nodes, you've got third parties that will work as a broker for large transactions, you know, you have smart contract um, uh, structuring companies that just structure contracts. Um, I mean, there's an enormous wealth of startups building on Bitcoin right now uh, that has gone completely unappreciated and has been lost in the narrative about ICOs and about new protocols. I don't think you need to build any of that functionality into the base layer. All you need is a very predictable, functional, um, you know, economic settlement network that does what you think it's going to do. And you can build all kinds of crazy stuff on top of that. Right, you just need that fulcrum of certainty at the end of the day that allows you to to base investments and future uh, projections off of. Correct? Like, is there's that- there's a lot of research that shows, and I mean, I, I'll share this on Twitter. There's a lot of research that shows that uh, GDP growth is strongly correlated with interpersonal trust bonds in a society. Interesting. And How can you derive that? Well, you, you you take a survey of individuals, and um, GDP growth is, is easily ascertainable. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, with that insight, you and and there's also there's also um, really interesting research that shows that um, capital markets uh, and debt markets develop um, commensurate with um, the insurances that are, are granted to markets through, um, regulatory structures in a bunch of countries. So for instance, civil law countries tend to have less developed capital and debt markets than common law countries because common law countries are just a little bit more favorable, um, and enable, you know, stronger market assurances there. So it really comes down to, in my view, um, you know, what, um, are the institutions that enable markets to thrive? And one of them really is bonds of trust. Um, and it's just an amazing relationship between societies where people tend to trust each other um, and um, GDP growth. And I think that um, blockchains extend those bonds of trust to the entire world rather than just concentrating them in a few lucky locations. 
And that's what I think this revolution is. It's, it's a new institution which is available to anyone regardless of where they happen to live and their regulatory regime. That was beautiful. Um, that was beautiful. And the one question I'll ask is like, so this is, again, going back to anachronisms and stuff like that. Like people are so set in their ways of how they've grown up. This is really a new way of thinking about how we structure ourselves and and how we conduct commerce. Like, how do you see the... How do you see that, like, the societal shift towards realizing that these are probably the ways in which we should structure ourselves happening? Structure ourselves happening. Well, I think a lot of people make the mistake um, about extrapolating all the transaction volume from an economy to a blockchain. They're like, well, look, Bitcoin only handles 300,000 a day, so it won't work. I mean, that's trivially true, but I think the real way it manifests is that you have a bunch of intermediaries that sit between you and the settlement network, the blockchain. Um, and they, um, you know, they were, they act as banks essentially, but, um, you know, the underlying asset is this is sound commodity money. Um, and the banks in this case are basically exchanges in, in my view, exchanges are banks. Um, and the market is sorting out the ones that are reliable and the ones that aren't. So like, it, you know, th- something I've been wondering about is how does a country Bitcoinize? I think you just need a critical mass of entrepreneurs and businesses that are willing to mediate um, interactions between individuals and between the settlement network. Um, and um, if they do that successfully, then they can um, they can you know lead that Bitcoinization. So you don't need every individual to be to be broadcasting every transaction of the blockchain. You just need a shift in consciousness between people that trust the uh you know the unbacked paper currency to trusting a, a commodity money which is which is sound and i think that i don't think it's going to happen in the next year or two but uh, you know longer term there's a huge incentive for any entrepreneur to build an exchange right there's obviously a huge opportunity there in a ton of countries worldwide there are people that are underserved by bitcoin and uh i think it'll eventually start to manifest itself and then it'll be a real threat to central bank policy, especially among the weaker central banks. So do you think it's just a matter of timing? As a put, Do you think it's inevitable? Uh, do you think it's inevitable? That's there has never been a real threat to central banks before. Um, you look at um, Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. What happened there, they dollarized because the dollar was a harder money. Now imagine that that is available anywhere with an internet connection. Uh, you can now Bitcoinize, you know, with even less friction. Right. So why, like, why assuming Bitcoin you? reaches some stability, why wouldn't it put pressure on weak central banks um, like those in Turkey or Iran or maybe Saudi Arabia? That's one thing people aren't. Nigeria. When pe- people aren't talking about. I think particularly are, right now, like. Turkey is like on the on the brink of. We might see a sovereign default in tar- in Turkey, right? So I I think they'll come under pressure um, within the next five years, probably. Hoddle people, make sure you're hodling. It's crazy though. Like, we should wrap this up soon, but like, again, I'm trying to like 
kind of stop saying like, but I'm trying to get at the core of how the core of the gravity of the situation and how, how much it means for us as individuals being alive now in the course of human history. Like I was talking about this at lunch today. Like we, again, and I say this on this podcast a lot, but like the inflection point we were born at, not many people get this opportunity. I would, I would refer to it as an opportunity to be boring at an inflection point. Like the one that we were born into now where you have sort of a transition from the industrial to the information age. And we are literally the pivot generation into this new age and the amount of opportunity and value creation and wealth that could be accrued because of this inflection point is massive. Uh, I guess I just wanted to pontificate there a little bit. Well, I've been pontificating all night, so yeah, it's your turn. Well, we have to go meet people at the honky tonk bar down the street. Nick, this has been one of the most pleasurable conver- conversations I've had in a while. Thank you, Marty. What uh, do you have a parting note for the freaks out there? Uh, thank you for breaking my duck with regards to podcasts. <laughs> um, I'm honored that you came on. You know, I, I, I like the sound of my own voice, so this is pretty key there. That's one thing we didn't get to talk about. Maybe we'll talk about the second time you're on Tales from the Crypt is uh, your Z, your uh, Z-Con talk, which I really liked on governance. That was a fun talk. I also haven't given many conference talks, so that was a little bit nervy. You did very well. Um, yeah, um, parting notes. Um, if you're an entrepreneur and you're building a business which relies on the assurances that public blockchains um, generate, I want to talk to you. I think that we can build something together. Where can we find you? CIV, man. On the island that's not an island. <laughs> out there in Boston. <laughs> is there on Twitter. Is there a web address? Oh, uh, yeah. I think we have a website now. I, I'm not exactly sure what it is. CastleIsland.vc, I think. Also, my DMs are always open, so I get a whole bunch of garbage in there, Um, but sometimes some good stuff. How much garbage? That's what I want to know. Endless. Yeah, CastleIsland.vc. Nick double underscore Carter, correct? Yeah, Nick single underscore Carter was already taken. That's unfortunate. It's goddamn NICs. (laughs) (laughs) So, find him. On Twitter, uh, Castle Island, if you're looking to build a company, hey, if you're looking to build a media company, a podcasting company talking about Bitcoin, hit up Nick Carter. Um, Nick, I am beyond flattered that I am one of the few podcasts that you, or one of the only podcasts that you The only one on. right now. The only one. I'll never uh, do another podcast. I can't, I can't, uh, can't articulate uh, how how honored I feel. Thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Peace and love freaks.